Hello everyone and welcome to Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds and Case Reviews with your host, Dr. Anil Harrison, who is the Program Director and Chair of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Central Florida and HCA Florida West Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. Today we'll discuss the evaluation and treatment of patients with hypertension. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or the views of Consulting 360. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back for another Dr. Harrison's podcast. My name is Dr. Shu. I'm a PGY2 in internal medicine, learning alongside you all. I figured that today will be a good time to talk about hypertension, some foundational stuff, right? Dr. Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Paul. I'm doing well. And I agree with you. Let's talk about hypertension. You know, Paul, in the old days, they used to say, well, you shouldn't bottle up your emotions because that can cause high blood pressure. And I often wondered, those who didn't or who wanted to vent, wonder what happened. Of course, the blood pressure might have gotten better, but I often wonder if that was appropriate, you know, the way they vent it out, blow their steam, let's put it this way. Oh, yeah. Pop the top. Right. So what is the history? I mean, uh, you know, why does salt get such a bad rap? I remember when I was in elementary school, they salt had many uh, uses. And, you know, before refrigeration, it was used to preserve meat. Could you give us a little bit of a history as to why salt has been linked to hypertension and why it's been much maligned? Sure, absolutely. So about 5,000 years ago, folks hardly ate any salt. The diet consisted mostly of meat and fruit. Over the years, salt was introduced into the diet and salt became a marker for a country's socioeconomic status. People looked out at the sea, sea world, divinely and remarked on the beautiful creatures that existed in the sea. And they thought it was because of salt. While some believed salt kept the devil away. Others felt it was godly to keep salt in their homes. The Romans believed salt would be the first thing to arrive on the table and the last thing to leave because it showed good hospitality. While trying to preserve their meat, salt was applied. Salt kept worms off carcasses and so salt was used to as medicine to help clear worms out of the system. Salt was seen as a good preservative and therefore it continues to be used in mostly canned foods and other processed foods. Believe it or not, it was in the late 1800s people figured that salt was causing problems and experiments conducted in animals revealed salt as a cause for high blood pressure along with kidney issues. Interestingly, the Bedouins and the Alaskans stayed away from salt. So while managing hypertension, there was a lot of resistance from physicians, including well-known cardiologists on cutting back on salt. On when to begin antihypertensives was also a big question. Until the 1950s, unless there was apparent end organ damage, including left ventricular hypertrophy, folks dithered from initiating antihypertensives. And antihypertensives such as beta blockers, and the non-dihydropyridine antihypertensives were used as first-line therapies with other medications such as clonidine, minoxidil, hydralazine, and diuretics. Folks with hard-to-treat hard hypertension were getting sympathectomies and adrenalectomies. So that, I would say, you know, is the history of hypertension. But I think it was in 
the 1980s when captopril, the first ACE inhibitor, came out. So am I right in believing or understanding that the recommendation for salt now is less than 2,000 milligrams per day, which is about equivalent to about half a teaspoon? You're absolutely correct, Paul. Yes. And then all this talk about salt, it must be very important because it affects our blood pressure. What exactly is the prevalence of hypertension? Well, the prevalence of hypertension ranges from 30 to 60%, and it gets higher as one advances in age. The prevalence of hypertension varies based on the designated cut point, and it increases from 32% to 46% when the cutoff is changed from a blood pressure of greater than 140 over 90 to a blood pressure of greater than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. Wow. So we're basically increasing the capture by lowering the threshold so more people meet criteria for hypertension then. Absolutely. Okay. And it's good to uh, get a handle on things before the deleterious effects of having uncontrolled hypertension take hold, right? Very true. So, okay. Now that we know salt is linked to hypertension and we know why hypertension is so bad. How does one uh, calculate their salt intake in the food that they consume? So in most packaging nowadays, the content of sodium is mentioned in the food, such as one gram of sodium per hundred grams of food. Now in salt, 40% is sodium and 60% of chloride. Therefore, one gram of salt equates to about 2.5 grams of salt per hundred grams of food. So if the package has 250 grams of food, the total amount of salt would be 2.5 times 2.5, which equals six grams of salt. Six grams of salt. That sounds like a lot. In fact, that sounds like it equals three days worth based on current recommendations, right? Less than 2000 per day. Absolutely correct, Paul. So one can of food could actually have three days worth of salt, you know, as a requirement. Well, folks, I hope it was worth it. I know whenever I finish a bag of potato chips, I always tell myself it's worth it. <laughs> then then the next day when my, my, my feet start swelling. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Instant regret. So moving forward, what defines hypertension? Why and how does hypertension develop? Sure. So, you know, there are various organizations, for example, the JNC has, you know, anything over 140 over 90 defined as hypertension. However, the ACC and the American Heart Association, they define hypertension as readings that are greater than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. So a diagnosis of hypertension, which is greater than 130 slash 80 millimeters of mercury, should be based on an average of two or more elevated systolic and or diastolic blood pressure measurements obtained on two or more occasions. So with systolic blood pressures ranging between 130 to 139 millimeters of mercury and a diastolic blood pressure ranging between 80 to 89 millimeters of mercury is categorized as stage one hypertension while systolic blood pressures 140 to 149 and diastolic blood pressures 90 to 99 millimeters are classified as stage 2 hypertension. So as mentioned, these relate to blood pressure readings taken at least on two occasions and at home, not at a physician's office. So while 90% of hypertension is classified having a primary etiology, it's only 10% that have a secondary reason for high blood pressure. With primary hypertension, genetic variants could include abnormal kidney sodium handling, increased activity of the renin-angiotensin system, and of course, an elevated sympathetic tone. So we briefly touched upon, and you even emphasized that these are measurements that are taken at home, 
Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. At least two occasions and at home. So for people who are taking their blood pressure at home, what is the correct, correct way of measuring blood pressure? Well, Paul, the recommendations are that the cuff size should be chosen very wisely to ensure that the bladder of the cuff encircles 80% of the upper arm. Because using a cuff that is too small will result in an artificially elevated reading, and using a cuff that is too large will result in an artificially lower reading. At least two measurements should be taken and averaged, and the two readings should be about a couple of minutes apart. Of course, one should avoid smoking, avoid caffeinated beverages, or exercise within half an hour before a blood pressure measurement. A properly calibrated and validated instrument should be employed. Blood pressure should actually be measured in both arms during the first visit, and the arm with a higher value should be used to measure blood pressure during subsequent visits. The patient should be seated, he shouldn't be talking, should be in a chair for at least five minutes, with the back supported, feet on the floor, legs uncrossed, and the arm bared and supported on a flat surface at the level of the heart or the right atrium. And at least two measurements should be taken and averaged two minutes apart. The process should be repeated if the initial measurements differ by more than five millimeters of mercury. So thank you for going over the correct procedure for measuring blood pressure manual. For those who have automated blood pressure cups, what are your thoughts and how does automated devices compare versus the oscillatory method? Automated devices have been shown to be closer to the awake cutoff office blood pressure levels measured with the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and may have a stronger association with subclinical cardiovascular disease. Ambulatory blood pressure monitoring using an electronic blood pressure measuring device is the gold standard for assessment of blood pressure out of the office and is a better predictor of cardiovascular outcomes, including left ventricular hypertrophy, cardiac death, when compared with office-based measurements. The device can be worn continuously for 24 hours, and one can program it so that blood pressures are taken either every 15 minutes or uh, every one hour. And normal blood pressure by the ambulatory blood pressure monitor, including a 24-hour average, should be less than 115 by 75 millimeters of mercury. And the daytime average should be less than 120 over 80. And nighttime blood pressure should be less than 100 over 65 millimeters of mercury. So this uh, automated device sounds very incredibly versatile. It seems to have near approaching the accuracy of even in-office uh, blood pressure readings, right? And it has the added advantage of monitoring at predefined intervals, as you uh, illustrated. So every 15 or 60 minutes. So in that case, the next question should be, what are some instances that you would recommend using a 24-hour device then? Yeah, so some of the indications would be, you know, when you suspect white coat hypertension, which means that the blood pressure is higher when the patient comes to a physician's office. Also with suspected masked hypertension, which means the blood pressure measures lower in a physician's office, but the patient tells you, well, when I check my blood pressure at home, it's much higher. It would also be useful for things like suspected episodic hypertension and also with apparently treatment-resistant hypertension. So you've got a patient on three antihypertensives already, you know, and you're kind of thinking about the fourth antihypertensives. So that would be another indication for an ambulatory blood pressure monitor. And of course, hypotensive symptoms with antihypertensive medication. You know, the patient complains of lightheadedness and you've had one or two readings. So this would be a good thing to evaluate. Is the person's blood pressure actually dropping? 
on the antihypertensives. So those are some of you know, the reasons that you would actually use the gold standard, which is the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Now, another reason would be possibly non-dipping. Now, what does non-dipping mean? Normally, one's blood pressure should dip by at least 10% or more at night. So if you have nighttime blood pressures that are not dipping, that would be another indication for getting an ambulatory blood pressure monitor on a patient. So these are some of the reasons. And of course, to ensure the most accurate blood pressure measurements at home, the upper arm cuffs are preferred over the newer devices that measure blood pressures, you know, say in the wrist or in the finger. So the more peripheral you go, the systolic blood pressure would be higher and the diastolic blood pressure is lower. So that is why I don't recommend you, my patients, monitoring the blood pressures using cuffs that go over a finger or the wrist. And that's because if it gives you a falsely elevated reading, the more distal you, you go to measure your blood pressure, you run the possibility of overtreatment. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So with that being said, are there any guidelines to monitor blood pressure amongst uh, adults? Yes, absolutely. So adults aged uh, 18 to 39 with a blood pressure less than 130 over 80, 85 millimeters and without cardiovascular risk factors should be rescreened every three to five years. And those who are 40 years and older and at increased risk for hypertension, for example, those who have blood pressures ranging from 130 to 139 systolic or 85 to 89 diastolic and uh, who are overweight or who are black should be screened annually. And the ACC and the American Heart Association recommend that adults with elevated blood pressures, uh, 120 to 129 slash less than 80 millimeters of mercury or stage one hypertension, which is 130 to 139 systolic and 80 to 89 diastolic, who are not yet on therapy should have the blood pressure repeated within three to six months. And this is a range of 120 to 129 over 80. That's the pre-hypertensive range. Correct. Correct. Okay. Absolutely. So then could you shed some light on an organ damage, morbidity, mortality, and what will one be looking for in a patient with hypertension? Sure. So, you know, let's start off with the eyes. As vasoconstriction on an arteriola narrowing, you know, confirming arteriovenous nicking or copper wi wiring on fundoscopic examination, you, you know, it's signifies endothelial damage. And you could also see retinal hemorrhages called flame hemorrhages. It could also result in optic neuropathy, which may result from ischemia to the nerve fiber, secondary to fibrinoid necrosis of vessels, which manifest as cotton wool spots or optic disc pallor. And of course, hypertensive emergencies can lead to papilledema, resulting from leakage, ischemia, fibrinoid necrosis, and ischemia. Medium to large blood vessels, such as you could get peripheral vascular disease, including aortic aneurysms, uh, just as half of uh, the transient ischemic attacks, it can cause lacuna infarcts and other stroke subtypes. Hypertension is also associated with vascular neurocognitive disorders, such as vascular dementias. Similarly, hypertensive nephrosclerosis and chronic kidney disease can also result from hypertension. Hypertension can also cause left ventricular hypertrophy. And of course, hypertensive emergencies may cause aortic aneurysm rupture or aortic wall dissection. And similarly, it has serious manifestations 
such as, you know, a hemorrhagic stroke or a subarachnoid hemorrhage from cerebral aneurysm rupture. You could also get an acute coronary syndrome, myocardial infarction, and both diastolic and systolic heart failure. Hypertensive emergencies can also cause acute kidney injury with arteriolar proliferation, fibrinoid necrosis, and also features of thrombotic microangiopathy. So this concludes the first part of our hypertensive series. Uh, please tune back in on for the second episode where we will pick up exactly where we left off, where we'll be covering how we will evaluate a patient who has newly diagnosed with hypertension. How's that sound, Dr. Harrison? Sounds great, Paul. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Harrison. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you. Bye. For more information on hypertension, visit the Resource Center at consultant360.com.